Good morning, church. All right, Bibles, get them out, open up the Bible apps. If you need a Bible to follow along in this morning, just put your hand up and our ushers will bring one to you. We've got some that uh, you can use to follow along in. And if you are receiving one of those Bibles that we hand out and you currently do not have a Bible of your own, please keep the one that you receive. Um, We did have somebody do that recently and uh, it is a joy to know that God's word is getting out even in that way. Um, All right, Uh, this one caught me off guard. Um, I had forgotten that Elise was going to talk this morning about that uh, QR code and the opportunity to share stories about what God is doing in our neighborhoods. Um, I want to share one that just uh, uh, was just put before me yesterday. And this is just evidence, this is affirmation that God is very much at work in our neighborhoods, even if we aren't. He goes before us and he does things that sometimes completely catch us off guard. And this is one of those things. Um, Yesterday morning, um, I set out to take our dog on a walk before it got too hot, which it certainly did yesterday. Um, We have a gigantic German shepherd named Rubix, um, and she goes by Ruby. And so I'm walking Ruby, and in true fashion, we get just a few houses down uh, at the start of the walk, and this is when Ruby decides that she's going to drop a landmine on someone's yard uh, before we get any further. And so uh, she did, and I'm cleaning up her business, and uh, and all of a sudden, this voice comes out of nowhere. Um, I didn't see this person, had no idea that she was there. This voice says, is that Ruby? And I turn around, I have to locate her, because she's in in the shade of a tree, she's watering her flowers out in her front yard, and this woman said, is that Ruby? And I said, yeah. And uh, she says, um, can I have a word with you? And I said, sure. She's, um, and <laughs> you know what I'm thinking, right? Like, I cleaned it up, come on. <laughs> uh, um, this is someone who we interact with very little. She has, um, she's rarely out in her yard. We rarely get a chance to interact with her. Um, and there's some, some rough history there with an alcoholic husband and, and lots of stuff, but we haven't seen her in a long time. She says, so um, a while back, um, your boys were out on the pond behind your house um, playing hockey and your dog was out there um, with them. Now, this puts it at least a year and a half ago because last winter there was no hockey on the back pond because of the drought. Um, we didn't get the ice. We didn't get to play back there. But our dog loves to go out and chase pucks on the pond behind our house. Her house is also uh, backs up to that pond. And, um, and she said, so your boys are out there playing with your dog. And um, I came home from work, she said, and I had come off of a really, really difficult day. Um, she said she, she's a nurse. She works in a hospital, a local hospital. And she had a really stressful day, and she came home. And when our dog's out in the pond, she has two dogs, and those two dogs go crazy because they're not out in the pond. <laughs> and so they bark like mad at Ruby, who's out in the back. And, um, and she said, whatever it was in me made me get really angry about that. And I went in the backyard, and I screamed at your dog. She said, I wanted to take a moment to tell you that I'm sorry. At least a year and a half later, this thing's been weighing on her. 
And she took the step, the courageous step, to stop me in the sidewalk as I'm passing by and say, I shouldn't have done what I did. Your dog didn't deserve that. Your kids didn't deserve that. I'm really sorry for what I did. I said, you have a great dog. She said, mine are crazy. You have a great dog. And you guys didn't deserve that. Will you please pass on my apology to your boys and to your wife? I just want you to know that I'm sorry. How's that for an open door? Right? That was, that was only God. It was just an amazing thing for her to do, to take the courage to do that. So we talked for a little bit, and I explained to her that I was very, very grateful for the step that she took, and, and um, at the end she thanked me for accepting her apology for something she had done maybe a few years ago that she was carrying with her. Listen, God is there. God is in your neighborhood. And even if you don't know your neighbors that well, like we don't know her that well, trust that God is at work in your neighborhood, drawing people to himself. And what he did in her was give her the courage to own something she had done that she was not proud of, and it opened up a conversation between her and us, and I trust that God's going to do something significant with that. He already has, and I trust that he's going to take that and move it forward, and his will will be accomplished in our relationship with this neighbor that we hardly ever see. Count on God to do these things in your neighborhood. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for them by name. Pray for them by house number if you don't know their names. Pray for your neighbors. Pray that God moves. And then please do take the time just to share with us how he's moving, what he's doing to open these doors for you. Um, it's a beautiful thing that God has put us where he's put us. That's his decision. It even says that in the Bible that God determines where we'll be. And we're there because he's working. And he's chosen us to join him in his mission of being light and salt in our neighborhoods. So don't be afraid to share what's going on, what he's doing. Um, it is beautiful to watch him at work. Okay, this morning uh, we continue in our series called Power, which is all about the Holy Spirit. We've been working our way through the first five chapters of the book of Acts. We've looked at the arrival of the Holy Spirit, which was a fulfillment of Jesus' promise that he would send his Spirit, and that Spirit came We've seen some of the history of the New Testament church, how it started, what happened through the lives of the disciples, how many, many people became followers of Jesus. There are some absolutely incredible things that have happened already in not even four chapters of the book of Acts. And recently in our journey, the brand new church grew through the miraculous healing of a lame man who encountered Peter and John and through them encountered the presence and power of God's spirit. Um, there was a lot of fallout from that event. The religious leaders responded. The disciples responded. And last Sunday, we looked at how we too should respond when our place as light in the darkness is challenged. We talked about the need to go straight to God with whatever it is that we're facing. The disciples gave us a great example of how we should respond to the world around us and our need to go straight to the Father 
and ask him to look upon the obstacles that we face. Now we get a picture of the early life of the church, and what we'll read sounds um, very familiar. Uh, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, wrote something very similar to today's passage back in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. Back there we saw what the church was about at that time. They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And in that account in Acts 2, we see the members of the church surrendering their material possessions for the sake of others in the church family who were in need. And now in Acts 4, we see the church described once again using some very similar descriptive terms. This characteristic of the church that we're about to look at is mentioned by Luke twice in just three chapters. Seems to me like we're supposed to pay attention to this. But I'm going to give you a warning here. Um, In recent history, there have been some very strong negative reactions to the passage that we're going to look at today. This is one of those passages that can make us feel really uncomfortable if we let it. You'll see what I mean as soon as we start reading it. Not surprisingly, most of the negative reaction to this passage has come from the Western world, of which we are a part, of which I am a part. In spite of being labeled as only an idealistic vision of the church, in spite of statements made that this idealism failed repeatedly so it has no credibility, In spite of being attacked as a communist way of thinking, in spite of making countless church people really uncomfortable, this is an accurate account of life in the first church in Jerusalem and then throughout the world. And historians one or two hundred years later reported that this model of church life was still very active and thriving. Yet this passage has become a A big pill to swallow. Uh, It's like liver and onions. Not a very pleasant experience for most, but it's good for us. All right, so turn now to Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And as you turn, I want you to ask God to show you what he wants you to see as we dig into this passage together. I'm going to ask you to set aside your performance mindset. This is not... A list of instructions mimicking what we read is not going to put you in better standing with God. That's not what this is about. This is an example, like the passage back in Acts 2, of what it can look like to surrender your life to Jesus and to his will. This is Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. This is what Luke writes. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, this is identifying him, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay. What I want to do for the next little while is give some context to what we just read and then step back together and talk about the principles that provide a foundation for this account. There's something really significant underneath all of this. I see three sections to this passage. They're paired in verses, verses 32 and 33, then verses 34 and 35, and verses 36 and 37. Verses 32 to 33 say a lot about the church's identity, which was visible in the unity that existed among them. Those verses also talk about their mission together as God's people. All of the believers, it says the full number, shared a common core value. They were united to each other in their allegiance to Jesus. Let me say that again. They were united to each other in their allegiance to Jesus. All right, press pause for a minute. Can it be said of God's people in the year 2023 that we are of one heart and soul? Now, certainly that can be said of some. This is, this is not completely absent. This is true of some of the relationships I have with my brothers and sisters in this church. But can I honestly say that the full number of the followers of Jesus in this world, in this country, in this state, in this city, in this church are of one heart and soul? It's a difficult question, and I can't honestly say that we all are. But I'm not criticizing. Criticism is not going to benefit anyone here. So what was it that made this even a possibility for the New Testament church? What is it that can make this kind of unity a possibility for God's family today? Because this is not impossible. Well, one heart and soul says a lot about this. The word heart in the Bible points points us to the very core of a person. The heart is at the center of who we are and how we live. And the soul brings in our feelings and desires and affections and aversions, all impacted and influenced by what's at the core. And the very core of the lives of the people in the early church was Jesus. John Wesley spoke about this unity this way. He said, their loves, their hopes, their passions joined. Paul said in one of his letters, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. You and I, being of one heart and soul, only happens When you and I look at each other and genuinely see someone devoted to Jesus, it's critical to our unity that you see in me a man devoted to Jesus and I see in you a brother or sister devoted to Jesus. And when I look at you, if all I focus on is the ways in which you are not a perfect reflection of Jesus, then we're in trouble. There will be no unity. I am not a perfect reflection of Jesus, despite my hair. I make mistakes. 
a lot of mistakes. God asks you to believe that I am a man who is devoted to Jesus. And God asks me to believe that you are a person devoted to Jesus as well. And if you and I agree upon our mutual devotion to Jesus, and we keep that common devotion at the center of our relationship and our perspective regarding each other, we can be, church, we can be of one heart and soul. When we read the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote in the Bible, do we see a man devoted to Jesus? Obviously we do. But even Paul said that he struggled to do the right thing. He knew what he wanted to do. He was devoted to Jesus, clearly, yet he fell short many times, just like you and me. That doesn't diminish my ability to see Paul as a man devoted to Jesus. And it shouldn't take away from my ability to see you as someone who is devoted to Jesus shouldn't take away from your ability to see the same in me. Jesus has to remain at the center. Jesus has to be our core. The rest, things like political views, lifestyle choices, status, opinion, those things have to take a back seat to our devotion to Jesus Christ. Which means that we have to intentionally keep Jesus at the center. And that takes effort. We need to share Jesus with each other. We need to talk to each other about what he's done for us and what he's doing today. Maybe it's something simple that needs to happen. Maybe we need to just ask each other more often how life with Jesus is. Rather than asking first and often only about our recreational activities, work situations, even our family And to be clear again, there is no judgment here. I need to work on this. Maybe it's something else, but there's intentional effort required for me to get to where the very first thing I see and I think when I encounter you is that you and I share a devotion to Jesus Christ. In light of that shared devotion, you and I can share the kind of unity that the first church did. Besides the shared devotion to Jesus, the early church was characterized by their shared mission as well. Verse 33 spells that out clearly. The disciples continued to give testimony to who Jesus was. The boldness that they had prayed for just before then was provided and many, many more people were added to their number, added to the church, and God's grace was upon them all. And that grace church was never intended to be hoarded. Grace is something that you naturally pass along. We naturally pass it along. God's grace has such a profound impact on our lives that it simply can't be tucked away as a keepsake for us. As God provides his favor, his grace to us, we pass that along and bless others with it. We share Jesus, we share provision, we share the riches of Christ with the world around us. And the natural product of that grace sharing 
is that we share a common mission to go along with sharing Jesus with each other and the church lives out its identity and fulfills its calling. Okay, let's ignore the second half of verse 32 for just a minute. Um, In verse 33, the mission of the church is stated, the apostles, those who followed and knew Jesus, carried out the mission that Jesus had given them. They spread the news about Jesus and it says God's favor was on them all. All right, moving on. Now we can bring the second half of verse 32 back into view and add it to verses 34 and 35 like this. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now verse 34. There was no needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, the unity pill that we just talked about that was hard to swallow was nothing compared to the it's not mine pill. We're going to come back to this in a little bit again, but I'll give you some more context here first because there's some really cool things going on. Things were not that easy in Jerusalem at the time that all of this happened to the early church. Like most big cities, people frequently moved to Jerusalem to the city to find a better life than the one they had back where they came from. But for those people, they risked being insecure for a while. That was especially true here in our passage. At that time, there was a famine in the land. That didn't help. There was also plenty of political unrest. This was not full-blown persecution or anything like that. That would come later. But society was struggling There weren't enough jobs in the city to keep up with the demand, and so a lot of people suffered. They could not make ends meet. And that, of course, was true even among the new followers of Jesus. There were believers who were in need, and the church stepped up to make sure that they would not remain in need. They took care of those who were struggling, but they had to do that themselves. Society didn't do it for them. There wasn't a system to care for them. And so they surrendered themselves to God and asked him to show them how they could help. And God's response seems to have been, let go. You need to let go. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And this is where the cries of foul are raised. Can this be any more contradictory to our cultural belief system here in the West? I doubt it. I worked for this. I earned it. I own it. And I will decide what happens to it. Makes this passage a real challenge. A big enough challenge for many writers to find a way to excuse this passage or even accuse it of being a promotion of communism. However, please understand this. Following this in the Bible, we see plenty of evidence that people in the church continued to own their own homes and have their own property. In fact, the church met in those homes. Many of those homes were meeting places like this is for us. So this wasn't about unloading everything and living in the park. 
those who had property or houses that they were not dependent on would, from time to time, as needs arose, liquidate those properties or houses for the sake of meeting needs in the church. Land and houses were very often their form of social security back then. They didn't stash their riches in the bank for retirement. They bought land and built houses that they could sell in the future to meet their needs, if they could. But they knew, followers of Jesus knew that God would meet their needs. And so things were sold and shared. Things that they no longer felt they owned, God owned them. This was about mindset. It's right in the text. No one said that their stuff belonged to them. And this is what we have to take away from our passage this morning. Church, the king of our lives is Jesus. Whatever we have comes from him. And so because we have him in common, we have everything that he has provided for his family in common. It belongs to him just like you and I belong to him. And we know that Jesus will always make sure that we have what we need. He proved that to his followers when he walked the earth. And I think that he loves to use us, his brothers and sisters, to bless each other and take care of each other's needs with the provisions that we have that come from and belong to him. We're going to come back to that in a bit. The last two verses give us a terrific example of what happened. A guy named Barnabas enters the scene. He's a follower of Jesus. God transforms Barnabas, and Barnabas no longer sees his possessions as his own. And so right away, he unloaded a field that he owned. And you can even see the struggle in our language to express this right here in the text. The field belonged to Barnabas, but... It really didn't belong to Barnabas. He saw it as God's and he released ownership of it for the sake of God using it to support his family. Now you have to know what happened to Barnabas later. Um, He surrenders to Jesus. He gets involved in the unity and fellowship of the church. He gives generously to support those in need. And then Barnabas becomes quite a prominent character in the book of Acts and in the New Testament story. His whole life heads in a new direction. When Paul encountered Jesus and was saved, he goes away for a while and he grows in his faith and then he returns and when the believers realize who he is, based on his horrible history with followers of Jesus, they're afraid of Paul and they cannot trust him. They're having a really hard time with Paul being there. But God calls Barnabas alongside Paul and he helps the believers accept Paul. And Paul and Barnabas then start traveling together as missionaries to places like Antioch and Cyprus and Iconium and Lystra and more. Barnabas and Paul help the church in Judea make it through a famine. Paul and Barnabas were partners in ministry until God led them to head in new directions separately. And Barnabas became a big character in the book of Acts. His generosity is a great example of what happened in the church at that time. Those who were in need were no longer in need. No one was. 
because they surrendered ownership of what they had to God and God used what they had to make sure that his family was being taken care of. Okay, so how do we do this here at Chapel Hill Church? Well, we have this thing called the Caring Fund that I'm very, very proud of. As a church family, we give to this fund to make sure that when somebody in our church and even beyond has a need, we can respond to that need quickly and remove whatever burden they might be carrying that doesn't need to be there. This church steps up and meets that need. And I got to say, being able to do this has been one of the greatest privileges for me since coming here to this church. This is a tremendous blessing to be able to do that, to to relieve those needs. I've seen many, many situations resolved because we do this. God redistributes what he owns for the sake of his family. And he's doing this through our regular giving as well. We're able to provide this church family with a place to meet, opportunities to grow, a family to belong to, a corporate impact on our community, and much, much more. Every day, spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical needs are being met because you, as God's family, are sharing what you have for the sake of seeing God's vision carried out through this church. I've heard that some of you have even literally sold something you have and given it to the church just like Barnabas did. Well, what's left for us then? We're doing a lot to make sure that the needs of this community are met. There's no way that I'm going to stand up here and scold you for not caring about the needs of the church. I never took anything like that away from our passage. So I'm going to close this message by focusing on the principle that we see in our passage, not the way this principle was lived out in that specific time, in that situation. In this earthly life, we always have room to grow. Every single one of us. In fact, growth is one of our core values as a church family. We're committed to growing In embracing our identity and our mission, we belong to Christ. We share Christ with each other in our pursuit of unity. And we share Christ with the world around us as well. What I want to focus on right now is how we support each other in living out that identity and that mission. The church at the time of today's passage faced some challenges The challenges Luke highlights were primarily physical. There were financial needs in the church. There was a need for food and for basic necessities. The church takes care of this need for each other. But I want us to apply this principle to a broader context. And this is something that Paul did throughout his letters the needs of this church family and the community around us go far beyond the needs for food and other basic necessities. And I want you to think about that for a minute. These are my questions for you. What do the people around you need, both inside and outside the church? What are people struggling with these days? And what I want to do is I want to just give you a minute to think about that. Okay, so set your mind to that. What do the people around you need, both inside and outside the church? 
what is it that people are struggling with these days? And I'm going to allow some awkward silence here. I just want you to reflect. So get in your own head, and I want you to think for a minute. What is it that the people around us need right now? What are the needs that people are struggling with? Okay, do that right now. The needs are there, aren't they? For the believers in the time of Peter and John in the early church, their worries included food and housing and other physical needs. But what about today? What are the worries of our world today? Well, maybe you thought of things like anxiety, depression, loneliness, fear, the identity crisis, bitterness, disillusionment, marital struggles. There are many things that we could identify as needs among us and around us right now. So how does the principle we saw lived out in today's passage apply to these needs? Does it apply to these needs? Well, I think it does. I believe God has provided his family with all that we need to make sure that no one among us is in need. But just like in our passage, I think we're going to have to address the ownership issue. At some point, I'm going to have to surrender more than just my material goods to God. Yes, God owns my house, my cars, my money, my food, everything that I have. But he also owns things that I can't put in a box and give away. And there are times when God needs to use what he's given me to meet needs that aren't quite so tangible as the need for food or money. Who owns my time? There's an uncomfortable question. Who owns my energy? Who owns my compassion? Who owns my empathy? Who owns the comfort that I've received from God? Who owns my abilities? Who owns my plans? Who owns my priorities? Who owns the love that I have to give away? Who owns my vision? Who owns my awareness? You see where I'm going with this? Something like the anxiety that one of my brothers or sisters in God's family is facing cannot be addressed with my material possessions. That challenge may require things like my compassion, my love, my time, my relational capacity, all of which belong to God. Our church, like any other community in the world, has needs. Our church family needs love, it needs community, it needs companionship, needs compassion, it needs forgiveness, needs encouragement. And remember that Barnabas from our passage today was not referred to as the son of fields. He was referred to as the son of encouragement. 
the capacity to encourage that Barnabas possessed belonged to God. Maybe I need to sell some of my time, my capacity, my energy, and make sure that those in my eternal family who are in need have what they need to live out the identity and mission that God has given them. So will you spend some time this week considering the needs of the people around you, inside and outside the church? What do you have that you need to stop considering your own possession? What can you surrender for the sake of the needs of others? This is something that we do well to wrestle with. But church, if we all did this, can you imagine the experience of our identity and the experience of our mission that we would share? Something to think about. Something to pray about. So let's do that right now. Let's pray together. Sovereign Lord, we come before you this morning grateful for all that you have done for us, for all that you have provided for us. Grateful for the identity that you have given us as sons and daughters of God. Grateful for the provision that you've brought to us so that our needs are met. Grateful for the mission that you've given us to take what you've given us, surrender it back to you, and join you in meeting the needs of the people around us. So God, will you accomplish that in our midst? Will you work in my heart and my mind and help me to surrender everything that comes from you, which is everything I have, and to turn it back over to you for the sake of anyone that has need. Knowing full well that God, you are sufficient for me. You are everything I need. I'm taken care of. And God, I ask that in our church family here, we would see just a great time, a great season of us being very much aware that what we have doesn't belong to us, it belongs to you. And we look around and we see the needs in each other's life and that I know when a need arises for me that your family will be there to meet that need. You'll do it through them and you'll do it through me for others. Just bring us into that experience more and more. God, I thank you for how this church does meet each other's needs that you provide for the ministry of this church so well and we are ready to respond when any one of us has a physical need, a financial need, a material need and that we do see this church step up and meet emotional and relational and spiritual needs. God, increase that so that no one among us is in need, even if they're facing something very difficult that we feel totally inadequate to meet Help us to remember that by your Holy Spirit living in us, you are adequate. And 
as we simply surrender ourselves to you, you will use us to meet the needs of your family, your church. Keep opening our eyes to truth, God. Help us to see what you have for us. We're yours. We surrender ourselves and everything that we have to you. Thanks for taking care of us and for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.